This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Our story today comes from actor, author, director, and comedian Michael Ian Black. It's a story about youth, privilege, and stealing, and comes with apologies to the Thompson Twins and Jane's Addiction. Here's Michael Ian Black. I never really, I mean really truly, wanted for money. I always felt like I was broke, but I had a tiny bit of cushion when I first came to New York City because I had life insurance money from my father who had died years before, and I had sort of just enough money to get myself mostly through college, and not really any more than that. But it wasn't like I was ever truly broke. So when I started shoplifting, I told myself, well, you're, you need to save the money for food and rent and all these other things because you're barely just hanging on. But that wasn't really true. Like I, I, the $4 I was saving by shoplifting bologna or pasta or Miles Davis CDs wasn't really because I needed to save money. And I don't even really know when I began shoplifting. I don't remember whose idea it was because I wasn't doing it alone. I was doing it with my friends. We all started shoplifting at roughly the same time when we were uh, living in New York City after my sophomore year of college, and a few of us were sharing an apartment together, and it just seemed like somebody at some point said, hey, we could save a lot of money on food if we just started stealing it. And that seemed like a reasonable proposition, at least to me and everybody else that I lived with. And it was terrifying. You'd go into either a bodega on... We lived on the Lower East Side, or one of the few supermarkets there on the Lower East Side, and we would each kind of uh, try to outdo each other with the things that we had shoplifted. So one guy might shoplift a box of macaroni and cheese, which is easily concealable in the back of your jeans, like a Glock or something. And then somebody might steal uh, a package of sandwich meats or even a loaf of bread would be very good because they're, it's, you know, it's long. It's hard, to, it's hard to conceal. I remember being blown away when my friend shoplifted a gallon of ice cream. I thought, how could you possibly conceal a gallon of ice cream? And he had a coat that for some reason was very loose in the armpit area. And so he was able to smuggle a gallon of ice cream just in his armpit. And I thought, well, that's just a remarkable talent and skill. And then we would go back to our apartment and make, you know, little feasts of sandwich meats, pasta, and ice cream, as you do. And then it started escalating 
a little bit for me where I started to find it very difficult to go into a store and not shoplift something. Like it just felt like the purpose of going into a store was to steal. And so I certainly, it wasn't because I wasn't eating enough uh, that I started doing it. And I certainly didn't need Thompson Twins cassettes to get through my week or like bracelets or something like that. It was never anything particularly valuable. I don't think I would have had the balls to shoplift something with a retail value of higher than like $15. But it, it did become something of an addiction. And I remember there came a point relatively quickly where I was like literally casing joints when I would walk into them. Do they have a metal detector? Do they have security cameras? Do they have plain clothes people wandering the aisles? Like, I very quickly graduated from guy who steals baloney to like petty thief, very petty thief, but petty thief, where I was beginning to think like a criminal. And my friends were doing the same. It was always scary. Like, it was always very scary to walk out of a place with 69 cents worth of, you know, Fritos in a little bag that you hadn't paid for because what would happen if you got caught? And I resolved that I would never shoplift within like a three-block radius of my house because or my apartment because if, if God forbid, if I got caught, then I could never show my face in in whatever place I got caught in again. And then it, just the mortification of that would just be so overwhelming that I didn't think I could deal. And I didn't want to get arrested in my neighborhood. So we would go on increasingly long jaunts to supermarkets that were further afield and bodegas that were further afield. Tower Records was a maybe 10-minute walk from my apartment, and that became a great attractor because it was very bustling. It was crowded, and, you know, I was in my late teens, early 20s, and music was, you know, super important to me at that time, as it is for most people at that age. But it really felt like you were breaking into the, the Death Star or something and stealing blueprints for the reactor when you would steal from Tower Records because they did have metal detectors and security cameras and plain clothes people. But the appeal of it was just so strong, maybe because they had those security measures, that it, it, it really felt irresistible. And I remember being with one of my friends at Tower Records, and it was hard to steal there because at the time, their compact discs were encased in these long 
plastic sleeves, sheaths almost, that would protect the compact disc from petty thieves like myself because it was much harder to steal something big than something small. Somehow we dealt with it, and somehow several CDs ended up in my pants when a large man said, come with me, please. And that was uh, a very, very scary moment <laughs> because it just felt like, oh, I'm going, I'm, I'm certainly going to Tower Records jail, which I did. Tower Records maintained uh, a room in their facility where they would house people like me, people who had just been caught shoplifting. And to my surprise, uh, my friend who I'd been shoplifting with was all also in Tower Records jail when I arrived. They had had, as we knew they did, security people, plain clothes, kind of roaming the store and presumably following us and seeing us do exactly what we did. It was uh, a little office area and the security guy and a manager who was not nearly as upset with us as I, I would have anticipated. Maybe because he dealt with this on a daily basis and maybe because we were first-time offenders and maybe because our hall wasn't particularly egregious compared to what it might have been. And so he said something along the lines of, I'm not going to call the police, but you are never allowed in Tower Records again. And that felt very fair to me. That felt like, yeah, that seems about right. And additionally, we had to give back the CDs, which seemed like a bridge too far to me. I mean, we, we had worked pretty hard for those CDs. And after that, I thought, well, you know, the jig is up. And I was, I was so embarrassed and mortified, and I didn't even tell my roommates what had happened. But I thought, I can never, ever steal again. And that resolve lasted about a day. About a day, I would say. And I found myself getting increasingly close to my apartment when I was shoplifting. And it was always, you know, like I said, it was never extravagant stuff. But I knew that the one place I could never, ever, ever shoplift in was the little bodega that was under my apartment because they knew me there. And so that place was totally off limits. I couldn't, I couldn't go there. And then one day I was heading home and decided to stop in my little bodega uh, just for a snack or something and saw on the shelves a, a pack of yodels. And I don't know if you know yodels, but they're, they're one of the better snack cakes, like chocolate, chocolate cake rolled in lard and then dipped in a chocolate shell. Really delicious. Retail value, I want to say 50 cents, maybe a buck. And I thought, well, I'm going to get these. But to me, getting them meant stealing them. 
And I, I remember thinking to myself, well, you said you're never going to steal from this place. You know these guys. They know you. You have a relationship with them. And I thought, I know, but am I really, am I really going to jeopardize all of that for a snack cake that I can pay for whose retail value is less than a dollar? And the answer was, yes, I will. And so I remember distinctly lifting my shirt and putting them into the front of my jeans when the guy who worked at the bodega came around the corner and saw me doing it. And there was a moment of him seeing me doing it and me seeing him seeing me do it. And a very quick calculation on my part of how am I going to explain this in any way, shape, or form. And the answer almost immediately was, well, you're not. You're just going to play it off. Like you were shopping, you only have two hands. So you were just going to store the yodels in the front of your jeans tucked into your underwear because you, you just needed to keep your hands free in case you became overloaded with bodega groceries. And so uh, I just looked at him dead in the eye and I said, I'll take these. And I pulled them out of my pants. And he seemed, to my surprise, to accept that. And he rang them up and I paid for them because I had plenty of money on me. I probably had three or four dollars on me. He rang them up. He gave me my change and I left. And that was the last time I ever shoplifted. That was Michael Ian Black with a true story from his life. I told Michael that it seemed to me that this story was about privilege. It's funny because I certainly never would have thought of myself as privileged in any way, shape, or form, which is the plight of the white guy you know, who has such thick blinders on that he doesn't understand that he's operating in an entirely different strata from so much of the rest of society. And I didn't see it at all. I didn't see it for years. And I still don't think I fully see it. I don't think you can if you're that guy. I don't think you can fully understand the opportunities and luxuries that you've been afforded, but they're there. You know, like my scarcity mentality has never disappeared. Even though I always had enough money, that never goes away, which is, which is striking to me. That that same sort of panic has always existed for me. But at the same time, I live so comfortably, especially compared to so many other people. And I think that privilege extends and worsens as you move into this phase of your life. And I used to see it with friends who had a lot more money than I did, who would complain about things that you would just think on the face of it were absurd. But I see it in myself, you know? I see it when, you know, my wife asks me to do yard work. And I'm like, well, that's why we have a guy, you know? Like, I'm that asshole. I asked Michael if he ever went back to the bodega in his neighborhood. No, I couldn't go back as long as I lived there. I didn't live there that much longer, but I I would never have shopped there again. So then they lost my business on top of everything else because I was an asshole. 
What a dick. What a dick I am. Would you say that's the moral? Like, if that this is the Aesop's fable? What a dick I am? I would say uh, that's the chorus of the song about this. It's caught stealing a pack of ham. <laughs> I think uh, Perry Farrell already covered that one. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And now for the song written in response. My name is Victoria Jones, and I'm a songwriter from Huntsville, Alabama. In short, I'm just a singer-songwriter that loves to write music about life and faith and people. I really enjoyed my little story because I'm like, bro, yeah, that's how we need to be living. We don't need to have like this edge of like shame, whatever, just honor stuff. Like, yeah, this is what I did. This is what I did. And, you know, I don't want to stay here, but it's what I did. And I I definitely, I enjoyed that. But I I just laugh because I'm like, I I could never, (laughs) I could never (laughs) get on I can never get on podcasts and talk about my, my petty life crime. You know, in faith, you want to submit those ills or those wrongs to the Lord. And honestly, I think it's it should be just that genuine, like he was, like just having out there. I think even God wants to have a relationship with us. It's like, just put it out there. I already know. Like, I already know. I know you're crazy. I know that you're a butthole. I know that, you know, you're doing these things. Like, I see you from on high. Circles has a lot to do with just patterns and even generational patterns. And even in faith, we talk about that a lot. We talk about like the sins of our fathers and how do we like cut those things off. And I hope Michael doesn't hear this and be like, that girl is trying to read my mail and she's nobody's psychologist. (laughs) Well, just being vulnerable, one of the biggest things that I have to submit is like scarcity mindset. And so many different things, whether it be love, whether it be money, whether it be all these things. Sometimes I have my own cyclic pattern of like, is this going to be enough or will I be enough or will this end or will this run dry? And um, in doing that, sometimes like trying to run away from that, that ill feeling of that, like I, I carry that mentality into other places. So I end up seeing even more scarcity or more, you know, it's like you, uh, it's like you're thinking something into existence. The, the fact of the matter is, you know, we should be rejoicing in, in all hell breaking loose as well because there's still good that's found inside of that. It's like, funny thing about growing pains, it hurts like a mother grieving. And so it's it was supposed to be a, a play on, like it hurts like an MF, um, but also it hurts like a mother. <laughs> it hurts like a mother grieving because, you know, growing pains, they hurt. Like even realizations, deep realizations that you have about yourself, they hurt. You're like, wow, I did not know I was this messed up or this messy. I guess the, the melody before the chorus, the do 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 I think it, you know, it's very repetitive and it has like a, to me, it has like a cyclic nature about it. You know, even as the chorus says, I don't want to live my life in, my life in circles. Same things I run from are the same things I run towards. And so even like if we are not introspective enough to recognize our patterns, we're going to continue to recreate those realities. And we're going to find ourselves in circles. We're going to find ourselves stuck in the same old things and the patterns. (laughs) 
um, Erica is living in, there definitely is a cycle that we that we have that we're involved in. You know, I hate comparing atrocities, but you think about the Holocaust and um, what happened there. You know, a, a place like Germany, they were able to to come out and say, you know, we were wrong. We killed millions of people. We displaced families. We're taking down the statues. We're taking down all the memorabilia of that. that. Um, and it was them coming and confessing that wrong. We like to sugarcoat and we like to dance around um, the cycles that we've created instead of having a real conversation that says, yep, we put these systems in place. Yep, we have hurt families. Yep, we have redlined communities, but we haven't had that conversation yet. And it hasn't been honest. It hasn't been raw. There has to be um, accountability and there has to be a, a place where even that line, it hurts like a mother grieving as we're having what I hope to be racial reconciliation talks, you're gonna have to be able to grieve. You're gonna have to be able to sit in somebody else's space. Sometimes when they're pissed off and angry and like throwing darts at you indirectly, even though you might be a good person and you can't pay for your father's sins and such, like still to be able to sit in that space and to listen to the cycles that our nation has perpetuated, I, I think if we don't do that, we're never gonna move towards healing and we're gonna to continue to see these same stories over and over. We're gonna see circles. This is Victoria Jones with her song, Circles. To escape the pain, I've I never been one for talking. Lick my wounds, I'ma be okay. But inside, there's internal bleeding. Oh, but a wise man once told me what you don't defeat, you will repeat. And I've been running, running out of my mind just to find myself at a dead end. Oh, I don't want. Sir. 
same things I run from All the same things I run towards New place, same struggle, different day, same time New place, same game, like the last time I can run, can't hide, recreating in my mind The realities that surround me Deja vu, I'm tired of seeing you 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 That was Victoria Jones with her song, Circles. You can get more information about Victoria at victoriajones.co, and be sure to check out Michael Ian Black's new book, A Better Man, A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son, which you can get at any bookstore. And that is the final episode of the second season of Songwriter. Thank you so much for listening. The third season of Songwriter will feature George Saunders, Toshi Regan, Cheryl Strayed, Mary Gaucher, and the returns of Roxanne Gay and Jonathan Lethem. Speaking of which, I'm happy to say that the next live Songwriter show will feature Jonathan Lethem reading from his new book, The Arrest, and songs written in response by me and Tift Merritt. The show will be on December 19th, and you can get more information at any of our Facebook pages or at songwriterpodcast.com. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, along with some other great podcasts. Make sure to check out americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. And again, to you for listening. I look forward to talking to you soon.